it's me. Before we start today's episode, just wanted to make you aware of something super exciting. As always, I do remind you sometimes that we record these episodes weeks in advance, and that is the case with this one. My guest today goes by the seated nurse, and I was very inspired by her story. Won't give a lot away because I want you to listen to what she had to say. But as I was editing the episode for this week, I looked up and she was on Good Morning America. So I was really excited to see what they'd be talking about. You know, they do several segments where they surprise our essential workers, first responders who have really been giving uh, their time and risking their own lives to make things better for us and to take care of us during during this pandemic. And uh, it was really wonderful and heartfelt what they had to say about her. And then at the end, y'all, this foundation who heard about her gave her no strings attached, one million dollars. Now there is no way that I could air this without at least trying to reach out to see if she had a moment to talk about how she's feeling and how life has changed since being on GMA. She was gracious enough to give me a few minutes of her time. So we'll start with the initial episode and or interview, I should say, and then we'll roll into what she has to say about how life has changed since that amazing gift. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, hello, and welcome to In My Shoes. It's a podcast for women of color where we talk about the issues that we're dealing with on a daily basis. I am your host, Karen Davis-Thompson, and I have a great guest with me today. I've been following her on the gram, really loving what she's been posting. So today I'll be talking to Andrea Dalzell, and she is going to tell you a little bit about herself, and I'll tell you why um, I've been so inspired by her story. So hello, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Again, thank you so much for your time. And if you want to go ahead and just tell the audience a little bit about who you are, what you do, that would be great. So again, my name is Andrea Dalzell. I am a daughter and a friend and uh, that go-to guru for all things disability related. I'm also affectionately known as the seated nurse because I'm the first registered nurse in a wheelchair to go through uh, nursing school here in New York City. Thank you so much for that. And so um, just for those of you who are listening, if you're new to the show, part of the reason why I really wanted to speak with Andrea today, while my daughter's disability is not a physical disability, I do have a child with uh, special needs. And so I'm a definite advocate for that. And I just really enjoy when people are able to speak that truth and really be heard. And so that was the reason why your story really resonated with me today. And so let's talk a little bit about, so as you mentioned, you are in a wheelchair. Congratulations. Now that part I didn't know, and I did my research, but I didn't know that you were the first nurse in a wheelchair to go through nursing school in New York. How did that feel? What was that like? Oh man, that was its own uh, uphill battle because again, with every first means that there's a learning curve that is going to be had. And there was definitely a learning curve as well as roadblocks and obstacles because people just didn't believe that someone who has a physical visible disability could be a nurse because of the quote-unquote requirements that come with being a nurse but and I kind of shattered that so hey <laughs> and I'm glad you did because what year, what year, year did you graduate I graduated in 2018 so we're talking about 2018 and we're just doing this, which is really fascinating to me. Um, also, the fact that you're in the medical field, like I, I guess to me, it's hard to fathom why you would think that when you're in a field where you need to be compassionate, where you know, you know, it, it's 
people are able to do amazing things every day. I'm sure, you know, people recovering, you don't think they're going to recover. Like why you would think that a person who has a disability wouldn't be able to relate and do the job? Or was it that it was the physical demands they didn't think you would be able to do? They thought the physical demands were, was not going to allow me to ever be at the bedside or be a nurse to the fullest capability of what nursing meant. Uh, and I say meant because I'm going to use that as past tense. When you are thinking about people who have disabilities, oftentimes there are some preconceived notions that go along with that, right? Uh, if you're using a wheelchair, you're using a mobility device, you're automatically going to be considered weaker when necessarily that's not the case. You know, we're not looking at someone based on what they're bringing to the table despite their disability. We're just looking at what mobility devices they're using and automatically coming to a preconceived notion that they wouldn't be able to do it. And I, I we didn't talk about it, so let's go over it just a little bit. So you have a condition that is called transverse myelitis. Did I say it correctly? And we went over myelitis, yes, you did. Myelitis, okay. So mm-hmm. could you explain to the audience what that is and was it something that you were born with or did this happen over time? So I was not born with transverse myelitis. I I was diagnosed at the age of five. What it is, is the inflammation of the spinal cord. And the best way to really think about it is uh, your body attacking a spinal cord. Like something happens, signals get sent wrong, and then all of a sudden your, your body starts attacking the one area of the body that actually controls everything. Um, for me, I was able to walk until I was until 12 years old. And then at 12, I completely stopped walking. Uh, and this was just progressive over time. And now, now I use a wheelchair full time. And, and what was it like to have to make that transition when you were able to walk and then at 12 um, had to start using a wheelchair full time? So as a child, you know, children don't take on disability the way adults or young adults would. Uh, children just want to play. So as a child at five years old, okay, my legs aren't working. Okay, mom, you've given me some wheels and all my, as long as I can play, I was happy. I was a happy child, no matter what. Uh, it was when I had to be faced with doctors, needles, constant appointments. That's what kind of dampened my childhood. And the transition part from being, you know, a young child to being a teenager at 12 and stop walking completely, um, that's what really brought out like the rebel in me. I didn't see myself as someone with a disability, even though I was using a wheelchair. I wanted to be seen as normal and okay, I have some wheels, I'll have to adjust, but why is it that everyone around me all of a sudden is fumbling over the fact that I have wheels. Um, I didn't like the labels. I didn't like the stereotypes. I And I say I was a rebel affectionately because I wasn't a rebel to be a bad person. I was a rebel because I just wanted to be seen as normal and I didn't agree with what able people were saying about me as a 12-year-old. And my mom actually, like, you know, used to, tell me all the time she was like well then you're only going to be as disabled as you allow yourself to be <laughs> I think that is great advice do you think that that helped you to be able to persevere even when people felt like they knew best or that you wouldn't be able to do in their minds what someone who was not in a wheelchair would be able to do you think that advice from your mom and having that type of spirit helped you out a little bit 
oh, of course, my parents were my number one supporters. Whatever I wanted to do that was reasonable and could be done, even if it wasn't done in the most safest manner as a kid, they allowed me to explore and, and have a voice and, you know, speak up for what I wanted uh, in my life. You know, and, and they were supportive of that. And that and that's that's a big difference, you know, for society telling me what I can and can't do, for teachers telling me what I can and can't do, for all of the obstacles that come with having a physical disability in an urban city that isn't exactly up to date on ADA. Um, my parents were like, go for it. You know, we're here for you and, you know, just make really good decisions and we'll, we'll support whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. And, and I've read that you said that you have had uh, patients and even colleagues who kind of felt like, you know, you walk in a room, let's say, and you're going to treat a patient. They felt like you uh, weren't going to be able to give them the assistance they needed. How, how does that make you feel and how have you dealt with that? Oh, yeah, I've definitely had uh, what, going through like nursing school uh, and going to clinical practices and having to be partnered with a nurse. I've had nurses say, oh, I thought I would have to push you into the patient room. And I was like, no, I don't I don't need your help. Uh, I can do this on my own. Uh, and then afterward, doing like a post conference, I would get told, oh, wow, that was amazing. I didn't realize. And I'm like, yeah, you didn't realize because the opportunity was never given right it's a forced right. kind of thing when you have patients who are in the hospital bed uh they know that i'm empathetic to their situation so they're okay with that but then they'll make comments that will say well oh maybe you need to be the one in the bed and i'm the one that's saying well i'm the one that's taking care of you so haha uh you know afterward there's this sense of wait a minute she actually got me she knows what I'm going through. I didn't even have to ask. She already brought it up. Um, there's a connection that's built that goes beyond my disability to someone who is a patient because they already know that I lived the life. I know it. And I'm going to be right there with them trying to ensure that they have the best care possible from the perspective of someone who already has a disability. And if they have a new diagnosis, that they're, they're going to get the best information possible. And they already understand that life goes way beyond the diagnosis that they would have. And do you ever get the sense that sometimes, I know with my daughter, so my daughter's disability is more uh, social emotional. She's on the spectrum, mm -hmm. um, ADHD. She's got a um, mental health disorder. And so I've had people who make comments that they think are complimentary, like mm -hmm. they're surprised she knows how to do something or they tell me how smart she is. Um, and they think that they're being complimentary and I always struggle with the best way to kind of deal with it because I don't want to say thank you. It just seems so like, I don't know why you think she wasn't smart just because she's on the spectrum. Do you ever get that impression that sometimes they think like they're complimenting you when they make certain statements and it's really like, seriously, I, I mean, how, how do you handle that? I know for me, it's been very difficult to figure out the best way to respond when I get those type of comments and they think it's a compliment. Of course, uh, when I'm taking off guard, I just I just say thank you, right? Because I I don't have the quick witted response that's going to be educational and transformative in that moment. Uh, but 
when I do think about it, if I, if it's something that I've missed, if it's something that I know I can get back in touch with that person about, I address it. I write an email and I'll say, you know, during this conversation, this was said, I just want to let you know, uh, educationally moving forward when you're addressing certain people or when you're addressing a particular uh, demographic of people, please make sure that you refrain from doing or saying these things because it may come off as a negative versus a positive, right? And right. and I think that when you, we're talking about any disability, regardless, right? So for someone who has an invisible disability, someone who may be on the spectrum, somebody who has a visible disability, it's all about presenting the way you want to be uh, spoken to, right? So when someone says to me, wheelchair bound, I'm like, wheelchair user, right in that moment, right? I'm making that correction in that moment. And if they say it again, I'm, I'm correcting them again. And then if it happens again, I literally take a time out to say, do you realize what you're saying? Because sometimes people don't realize the words that are coming out of their mouths. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. And I do sometimes I've just said thank you because in the moment I'm like, what else mm-hmm. am I going to say? But, um, you know, just really having to retrain even and they're adopted. So a lot of times people say, well, they're a real mom. And I have to say they're biological mother. So I, I totally get it. It's like people say things that are, or sometimes they'll say, oh, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter if I know what you mean. I'm just educating you to let you know that that isn't the appropriate thing to say to somebody. I'm her mother. And for you to talk to me about her real mom, it just, <laughs> I just was curious as to how you handle it because I'm sure you get it way more than I do. But um, like I said, when people know she has a disability, some of the things they say to me, it's like, oh no, she's really bright. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just because she's disabled doesn't mean she's not smart. So that's a good way to approach it um, and to maybe get back to it. Sometimes I felt like I've missed a moment, but I just didn't know what to say. <laughs> so yeah. um, thank you for that. Yeah, that's something that I can use. You know, you're teaching me. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. Have you ever found that um, because you have a disability that it makes you, you talked about the fact that it does make you a little more empathetic, but was it part of the reason why you wanted to go into nursing? So I didn't always want to go into nursing, right? I, at first, wanted to be a a lawyer. And I said that I was going to go back and and sue all the doctors that ever put me through immense amount of pain. Um, This was the idea of a child, right? And then uh, when I was in junior high school, I was really, really sick. And for my junior high school graduation, I had to actually be uh, given exemption to leave the hospital to go to my graduation. And my doctor uh, went to my graduation with me and in my memory book, he wrote, please, anything but a a lawyer. So I said, okay, Uh, I went to high school thinking that I was gonna be a doctor, graduated from high school, went to college with that same gusto of I'm gonna go to medical school. I studied biology and neuroscience. And when I was auditing medical school classes, I really realized that the medical model focused on uh, treating a disease process. So you're looking at someone, but you're not seeing them. You're just seeing what their cells are doing. You're seeing what their diagnosis will entail. You're understanding a prognosis that's probably going to be, you know, on the negative side and trying to give the best amount of hope with no real hope at all. Right. So I realized that I never wanted to tell a patient or tell anyone that 
they would never walk again, that they wouldn't be able to dance, or they wouldn't be able to do something that they absolutely love. Because in the world that I live in now with disability, everything is possible. Everything is happening. It just is happening in a different way. So how do I, at that time, handle being able to say I'm going to be a doctor using the medical model and telling people what they can and can't do? Because I'm not God and I don't want anyone to play God. So therefore, that doesn't work for me. Uh, and that's where nursing kind of came in. I had different conversations with other people, other nurses, and they were like, nurses encompass the whole person. They treat the whole entire person from home, community, you know, diagnosis. They, they, they're just a very holistic practice. And that's where, you know, I decided that I was going to go to nursing school. It wasn't that I saw a nurse before in a wheelchair. It was just something that came about. And when you enrolled in nursing school, what were some of the things that needed to be done to accommodate your ability to, to be there? And, and how was that? How was that handled? Like when you when you went in, do you remember your first day? Did people kind of give you an odd look? Um, how did that happen? How did that go? And, and what were some of the things that needed to be done so that you would be able to participate? So what needed to change, honestly, was mindset. There needed to have an open mind that someone who moved differently can do the same job, right? There's an open mindset that needed to be had that was not had. My first day of a mandated orientation, I went into that classroom. The people in the room, the students that were there, the new students, new prospective students just like me, um, we they didn't look at me any anyway they all greeted me i was i was already building a friendship and you know a community that i was going to be a part of at least in my mind and then i get pulled out by two professors who say to me oh we don't know if you can be a part of the program you can leave for today and we'll get back to you and my first instinct in that moment was to say well the ada says that i'm allowed to be here <laughs> And uh, I'm covered by the ADA, so I'm just going to stay for the orientation and then we'll figure it out afterward. Because I knew in that moment when they said to me that I can leave and it was a mandated orientation, that if I had left, they could have used that against me. Oh, she didn't make manda uh, the mandatory uh, orientation, so let's just wait for the next semester or it could have been that outright well she doesn't need to come back to the program because she won't be able to do it and why do you do you think that people are just not educated about ada because you know i've had those types of instances where i've had to be very insistent about what my daughter's rights are or like i even had a niece who um, had a shoulder dislocation and ended up having to have surgery and we literally had to fight with the university to make sure that they made certain accommodations that were required while she was recovering. And you would think that, I mean, this is 2020, you were in school and you graduated in 2018. It's not like ADA is a new concept. So why do you think so many institutions seem to be behind the eight ball and think they can get away with telling somebody with a disability that, you know, I just don't know if this is going to work? It's because the ADA is 30 years old and it's never been enforced. Look how hard it takes for how hard it is for someone to uh, get a discrimination lawsuit. 
look how hard it is for accommodations to be put in place because employers don't even understand what accommodations are. They give you a time limit on what accommodations should be and what they think uh, they should be for you. Uh, instead of you being able to say, oh no, these accommodations are what I'm going to need. Um, and then the other part of that is cost. Everyone thinks that having an accommodation is going to cost them an extreme amount of money. When it's literally just leveling the playing, playing field for someone to be able to have an opportunity in whatever facet that opportunity is going to come in, whether that's in education, whether that's in the workforce, whether that's just living a daily life in society. We don't think of accommodations as allowing someone to work from home half day. We don't think of accommodations as getting a desk that may be adjustable in height. We don't think about accommodations as having a double screen with a black and white reader for someone who has visual impairments or having the um, software dragon for people who need text audit, right? So what accommodations mean for someone is literally just allowing them to have an opportunity as an able-bodied person. And what people really seem to forget is that disability is the largest and fastest growing minority in the world. That literally means that it doesn't, it's not going to be if you ever have a disability, it's going to be when you have a disability. And why should I have to wait until the when occurs in your life for you to then realize what I was asking for at the very beginning? And I completely understand that. Um, I think, as you said, a lot of times people don't get it until it happens to them or until it, until it happens to someone that's close to them, um, which actually leads me really uh, well into my next question, because we've had several conversations amongst my friends uh, about that as it relates to COVID-19, this whole mask thing, which blows my mind. It's like, and let, until you've experienced it, then you get the reason why you need to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. um, and I know in some of your posts, you talked about working with patients. What has that been like? What are you all seeing there? Um, and how has that been working with patients who've come in with COVID-19? You know, it took me 76 interviews plus uh, and then COVID to happen for me to get a job in acute care in a hospital setting. And when did that happen to be? When COVID was at its peak here in New York, right? And in that moment, in that, in that call to service, not only did I prove that I can do the job, my patients already had this negative outlook in life. Like, you know, COVID has this bad rap and it does. COVID is a very serious illness. And if you don't take it seriously, it is not something that you wanna, you wanna mess with, right? So these patients are scared. They're in there, they're not knowing, they don't have family by their side. And I'm going in there understanding what it means to be in that room, understanding what it means to not have family by your side when you need them the most, and understanding that giving an extra three minutes, even when we're already run down, can mean the world of difference to someone, right? And, and nurses really embody that. So I speak for all nurses when we say like, you know, we're doing our best, we've been doing our best, we've been giving it our all, literally, uh, to ensure that the patients that are coming down with this virus are getting the care and the love that they need while they're away from their family members in these settings. And COVID is just one of those things that I really hope gets a handle on sooner rather than later because the amount of death that I've witnessed 
is going to stick with me for the rest of my nursing career. For the rest of my life. And I just mm-hmm. nursing. And did you have, I, I think that's interesting. So where were you working before um, your current position? Then, Because you said it took you, it was not until COVID that you were able to get the position you have now. Is that correct? So I, so there's a lot to that. Let's, let's break it down. Uh, before COVID, I was a, I was a school nurse. I still am a school nurse. I still have that uh, as my bread and butter job. Uh, and before that, I was a case manager. Uh, and before that, I was the health director for a camp. Uh, so moving towards COVID, I was a school nurse. Schools closed down. And as soon as schools closed down here in New York, you know, our hospitals got overloaded. They needed the help. They needed the, the nursing staff. So I reached out to an HR department that had publicly posted their HR number. They called me back within 15 minutes, asked me my credentialing and asked if I can come in the next day to get, uh, to get my badge and get all my paperwork processed. So it literally took COVID for me to get a job. Since then, my contract has ended with the company, with the facility because of the fact that uh, our numbers have gone so down, dramatically down. Our hospitals aren't overweight anymore. And I have not been able to get another job in the hospital system. Wow. <laughs> and and I know it's got to be difficult because I'm sure uh, the fact that you, have you been to interviews where you knew the fact that when you walked in and they saw that you were in a wheelchair was the deciding factor, even though maybe obviously you may not be able to prove it, but have you ever been to an interview and you kind of felt like, yeah, this is not going to go well because they've already made up their minds? Oh, a hundred percent. Out of those 76 interviews alone, those 76 interviews were just for acute care. So either in a ambulatory setting in a hospital setting or in a direct patient care setting. And I can maybe say out of the 76, 70 of them, I, I already knew. I knew just rolling in. The moment I rolled in, I, I would hear comments like, oh, there's a person in a wheelchair here to see you. I think uh, they're here for a registered nurse position. And then you would hear the other person, a nurse can't be in a wheelchair. Are you sure that's what they're here for? Let me meet them. You would hear these conversations. Wow. Or even in an interview setting where I'd be in a panel-like setting and I'm discussing my disability up front and center because I already know it's the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. HR would be present and be like, well, you don't have to discuss that. Um, we'll take it into consideration later. What are you taking into consideration if you don't want me to discuss the fact that with my disability, I can do the job? And are you going to take it into consideration when I'm not in the room so that you can then decide what my ability is and isn't? And I think that it's really sad that, like I said, we're still going through this. I read an article a friend of mine had written about the fact that, you know, the anniversary of ADA just um, Mm -hmm. took place a few weeks ago. Yes. And, uh, you know, they talked about how the judge talked about it's the most discriminated against group. Um, And so what do you do you have any hope that um, I know you said that you feel like it's not going to be until, you know, a majority of people, I guess, in power start to really feel it. But do you have any hope that some of this is going to change or it's going to get better so that it doesn't have to be such a struggle for a person with a disability to be given the same opportunity as someone who um, does not have a disability? Do you, do you have a lot of hope that that's going to happen anytime soon? Or do you think this is a, 
a struggle we're going to be fighting for another 30 years? Well, I really hope not. (laughs) I do have hope because of the fact that look at what happened when COVID happened. A majority of people are affected. Everything closes down. Everything moves remotely. So in an instant, when you take a snapshot of what happened in the end of February, early March, especially here in New York, uh, the majority of the population is affected. And within a snap, everyone now can work from home. You now have accommodations. Things are now in place. Well, when a small majority was asking for these things pre-COVID, right, just so that they can live, they can be uh, part of society, that they can be contributing members and taxpayers to this community, uh, we were told no. So COVID alone has shown that there's a ability to be able to open the doors for people with disabilities to not only get gainful employment, but to also get the accommodations they need for employment, right? And the other flip side to that is, if we start having these conversations in-depthly, not at a congressional level, just at a human level, the doors can be wide open for multiple opportunities to come through. But we have to be willing to have the conversation, come to the table and have the conversation, and come to the table and have an open mind towards what we're talking about now. You know, I really can agree with what you're saying because even people who were asking to work from home, maybe because they had a child with a disability, like in my case, they were told no, but obviously COVID has proven that. I mean, thousands of people within the like days, right, were able to all work from home. So it's going to be difficult to give that excuse when we all go back uh, to, to quote unquote normal, whatever that looks like. Uh, once this is done. So definitely, hopefully, the things like that will be able, you'll be able to use for people who've been asking for these accommodations to be able to get them, because it's going to be hard for you to say, oh, we can't do that, because we've proven that we can do it. Um, so hopefully that will, uh, that'll be a benefit. Um, we've talked a lot about um, how it's impacted your work life. But one of the other things I saw on, uh, on the gram is that you are really uh, into a lot of your workouts and, and taking care of yourself. So tell me a little bit about that. I've seen some really extreme stuff that you've been doing on the gram. So tell me a little bit about that. How does it make you feel? Um, and why is that something that's so important to you? So I have always felt like I carried this weight of the world, right? And this weight only gets heavier and heavier with every day that passes. And I don't mean that to, you know, bring a dampen down to the conversation. But I say that because when we live with a disability in a world that was not made for us, you're constantly trying to fight this ableistic thought process that you have to be perfect in order to be accepted. And I struggle with that a lot, like an immense amount. So I realized that when I am athletic, when I am you know, putting time into my own self-care and self-love, and that comes in the form of going going uh, to work out, going to meet with my trainer, going to, you know, have a really good meal that is not uh, going to weigh me down. Like when you know you're, you're so full, 
that mm-hmm. you can't move like I don't I like know the feeling like that yeah, yeah but you know like to have a very clean meal and you know that it's like nourishing your body and you're doing all this self-care and self-love whether that be mask or like you know getting my hair done little things right um we we think they're little things but those are actually really big things for someone who has a disability right and for me particularly I had to get back into that recently because my mentality was so weighed down from going back into the interview process and not getting a job you know 70 I say 76 interviews from previously as if it rolls off my tongue like it oh it was nothing to face rejection 76 times and then you know get a COVID contract work prove that I can do the job and then go back into that interview realm and get rejected again and again and again even though I've already proved my ability it can take a toll on your your mental health and I felt myself getting very distant with who I wanted to be and who I was trying to portray and I also know that an idle mind uh, brings negative thoughts so I needed to get back into working out and when I was mentally fit was when I was working out doing rowing when I was boxing you know when I was wheelchair racing all of these things I used to be the most mentally agile person nothing brought me down like the negatives just were not they could not stick to me so I needed to get back into that so especially most recently I have been working out with a a trainer again doing very hardcore workouts because one I'm trying to break the stigma that you know, someone with a disability can't push someone else with uh, in a wheelchair or push a stretcher down or pick a patient up or lift something heavy. Like, um, I do that all the time, just working out, <laughs> right? And then the other part of that was just so that I can get those endorphins going so that my mind didn't slip into this negative space and uh, just forget why I have a purpose here in this world. <laughs> I know that's got to be very trying. I was going to ask you, Um, You kind of answered that question, just um, how that has to make you feel. And that has to be very difficult when you've proven yourself and it still doesn't seem to be uh, enough. So I'm glad that I I saw a couple of posts where you talked about the importance of self-care and self-love, which is such a big uh, part of what we talk about on In My Shoes, because I do think that especially women, for whatever reason, um, we don't do enough of that. I know for me, I spend so much time focusing on my daughter that I can forget that there are things for me that I still need to take care of or I won't be able to take care of her. Uh, So I'm glad you were able to get back into that space of working out. Um, And how has the disability impacted your personal life? Has it been difficult when you're dating? Do you have uh, guys who who had trouble getting past the fact that you were in a wheelchair? What has that been like? Dating is dating for everyone. I think that all women have issues dating. Preach it because listen... No one is, no one is uh, going to just be able to pick up one person and be like, "Oh, dating is great." <laughs> like, no one likes dating. I don't think I've heard <laughs> anyone say that they love dating. Um, so for me, I am such an upfront person that I automatically discoot guys that are just rude uh, about my disability because if you don't, like I said, if you don't have an open mind, it's never gonna work. And it's all about your approach. So for me, uh, I think that because I give off a very dominant persona, that the men 
and partners that I've attracted have always had an open mind and a very dominant persona themselves. So they already knew that my chair wasn't going to be the defining moment between me and that person. (laughs) So I never had an issue, thankfully. But I do know that other women in chairs do face you know, the stigma that comes with a wheelchair, you know, everything that everyone wants to know, can you, can you have kids? Can you be married? How can you live independently? You know, does your partner then become your caregiver? No, that's not how these things work. So I just wanted to ask you, you've done 104 posts on Instagram, and you have more than 18,000 followers. Mm -hmm. So how does that feel? And did you set out to really be able to be a role model? Or was this just an opportunity for you to express how you feel? And it just kind of morphed into that. And what has that been like? I never had the intentions of growing my platform. You know, I just wanted to tell my story. I figured if I reached enough nurses through social media that I would be able to get a job you know if I had reached enough nurse managers to see my page to see that I'm living an active life you know maybe they will uh, have a different mindset and you know reach out and say we'll offer you a job that hasn't happened yet (laughs) but Mm -hmm. you know I do realize that in turn everything that I've been looking for Other women are looking for a role model and to see themselves where I've already been and that they didn't know that they can do it. Mm -hmm. So being able to kind of give back in that sense, have these messages where women are saying, thank you for, for telling your story or thank you for shedding light on this or thank you, I didn't know I can be a nurse or thank you, I didn't know that, you know, I can make something adaptive or or thank you for talking about the mental anguish that I'm going through because it's something that I'm feeling heavy too and I'm going to go work out now you know I'm going to try to make little changes those are all big changes for someone else's life all the things that I've already done and been through to be a, a woman of color too we oftentimes don't see ourselves anywhere making any types of big moves especially in the disability community so for me, I feel like it's it's just a door opening for some other young person to say, you know what, Andrea did it. I know I can do it. And I'm sure, you know, we didn't talk a lot about that as well. Obviously, this podcast is for women of color, but I think that um, it's just another layer. Does that make you um, feel any more frustrated? Not only do you have a disability, but being a person of color where you already have those stigmas and stereotypes that people um you know, carry into a room just because you're black. So how does that, how does that make you feel having to put those things together? Do you think it's almost like you're fighting a a dual battle almost? Uh, When I was in high school, I had a assistant principal tell me that I had the three strikes. I'm a woman, I'm a woman of color, and I have a disability. She said it in a way to demean the fact that I no longer was going to be taking uh, yellow school bus that I didn't want to be a part of their their special education program because I was mainstream you know they she tried to use it as a way to say I would not amount to something more and in all actuality it's where I felt the most comfortable when I'm around other women of color who have disabilities who are thriving and successful in everything that they're doing so therefore it never actually diminished me it just gave me a platform to kind of say hey I'm here 
you know, we give so much power to other people because they use these words against us instead of us taking those words and saying, well, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm better than that. I got all of these things and I, I am successful anyway. Thank you. Use it to your own empowerment. What would you say is one of the things that you that irritates you the most, the stereotype that irritates you the most about a person who's in a wheelchair? Oh, this assumption that we that we're weaker. You know, the strongest people I know are in wheelchairs. Think about it. They have to be mentally strong because every single day they're facing something that is inaccessible, whether it be in their own home, whether it's leaving their home. Let's say they live in an apartment building and their and their elevators are out or they can't reach the top shelf in their kitchen. Right? Or even going down the street corner and there's no curb cut. Or that there's uh, not potholes, what do you call them? Cracks that are so big that your wheel gets stuck and you end up getting flipped out of your chair. Right? So there's all these little things. And those are just the little things, right? What about um, push buttons to get in and out of doors that are too heavy for us to actually pull for ourselves? And we don't think so much into it. But when you see the UPS or FedEx driver uh, pulling the cart up and down those ramps and you're like, huh, they got, they can use that too. Or the mom with a stroller who's going up and down those ramps uh, or the curb cuts, you're like, oh, see, this is accessible for everyone, (laughs) right? Or someone who has hip pain who doesn't necessarily have a physical disability, but they're limping and don't want to walk up 10 steps. And now they're walking up a ramp instead because it's easier for them. That's accessibility. But we're not thinking about that. We're not thinking about, okay, if we just put ramps everywhere and have curb cuts or have push door buttons, that it's not just for someone in a wheelchair. It's for everyone to have access and equal access and making sure that, you know, people feel supported in their communities by little things that can make the world of difference. We're not weaker. We're just living in a world that's not made for us. And we're making it look easy. And how do you feel about, you said that you are a school nurse, and so when is school slated to start there in New York? Um, right after Labor Day. So and how are you feeling now. about that? How are you feeling about going back? Do you, are you guys in a good place there in New York? Um, I don't, I don't know. How, I have very mixed emotions about going back. I do believe that, you know, kids do best when they're in a setting of the classroom. They have room to socialize. They, you know, in they're in an academic setting, so they're learning um, and they're not just home. But at the same time, we have to be extremely careful. You can't just send people back into the building. It's not just about our kids going back into the building. It's about our adults, too. Right. These are these kids are going to go home back to their parents who are also traveling to and from work or teachers who are traveling to and from. And Corona is not gone. It's not going to go away tomorrow. And in those types of settings where even if you had six feet apart at the desk, kids are going to be kids. They're going to be walking around. They're going to be coughing. They're going to be moving their masks. They're, you know, we need to ensure safety and protocol before saying we're good to open. Let's give it a try. Well, I wish that we were Labor Day here in Florida. Right now, it's in the next two or three weeks uh, here in August that some of us are going back. So um, it's going to be a scary time, I think, everywhere for everyone. Um, as it relates to COVID and going back. So 
Um, hopefully things will maintain. Are you guys still kind of at the, your, your curve is still flat? Uh, I know you said, obviously it's better. You don't have the contract anymore, but have you all been seeing a rise as, you know, tourists want to try to come in like people from Florida <laughs> where we're a hotbed? Uh, no, our numbers have been pretty low and consistently low. Thankfully, I do intend for schools to open back in September. I think that, you know, the DOH, our Department of Health and our Department of Education are really putting in the steps to ensure that every school has what it needs to be able to open. And at the same time, we're all going to be scared. We're all going to be hesitant and we're all going to be, you know, in this new sense of, of precaution and caution. And, you know, maybe not so much Florida because you guys' numbers are out of control. Yes, they are. <laughs> Your numbers are out of control. But here in New York, I can definitely see things starting to open. The problem is that when you have New York that has been able to flatten the curve and keep our numbers low and our system, our hospital systems aren't overburdened, uh, it's other states and other commuters that are going to be coming in that we need to to worry about and make sure that we, you know, take account of. And that's where tracing and, and testing is going to come in uh, in a major factor. We want to make sure that, you know, we know who's coming from where, who's coming into contact with who, and trying to ensure that our hospital systems never become overloaded the way that they were at our peak again. You know, and I... I know people are going to be against this, but I think even Florida is a little bit too premature to be opening up to schools because it's not about the students. Once again, yes, every student needs to go back to school. I am 100% for that. But we really need to take into consideration the teachers, the families that are going to be put at risk, and the school nurse that's going to be in front of every single child at some point during the day. I was going to ask you about that. What what grade level do you uh, have? Is it, are you more than one school? Are you at one specific school? I have two locations and I go between uh, K and 12th grade. K through 12. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask how you're feeling about that for you personally, because especially with the babies, like our, our church has a preschool here in Florida where I live and you know, just trying to get them to understand the whole mask thing, or they want to hold their best friend's hand, or they want to give their teacher a hug. They don't, they don't understand what the times we're living in that make that they can't do that. Uh, and so, how are you feeling just about your own personal safety going back into the into the schools? You know what? I am going to get tested as much as I need to be tested, and I'm not going to deny a little kid uh, a, a bump on the fist or uh, an elbow tap, right? Because they need to know that things are gonna be okay. The moment we take away uh, their sense of connection from them, things get messy. (laughs) And kids need to feel like there's a sense of security, not only at home, but at school when they're with their teachers and they're with their peers. Right. So I think it's going to come down to uh, really talking to them and teaching them different ways instead of like hugging or high fiving. Let's do these little things, you know, make up a dance, show that there are other ways to connect that doesn't necessarily involve touching. And when it comes to me being in front of them, 
I'm just going to be there to be the school nurse like I always am. And I'm there to fix all the boo-boos and fix all the tears. And hopefully everyone stays uh, healthy as much as we can. Okay, guys, that was the first part of the episode. And now we'll hear what Andrea has to say about life since that amazing gift. Shoes fam, I am here with Andrea. We are doing a quick follow up. So, if you watched Good Morning America a few days ago, her life changed within y'all minutes. I was so excited watching it. Uh, and so, we're just here to kind of talk a little bit about what life has been like since that huge surprise on GMA. So, Andrea, you're on Good Morning America. So, when you realized what was happening, you opened the door and there was TJ Holmes. What was going through your mind? Um, I think I blanked out because seeing TJ in itself was, I know who this person is. I know what he does on GMA. Why is he at my front door? <laughs> like, so that even watching it, it my hesitation, because I pulled back from getting, like hearing the person knock on the door to open the door and go, or like, you know, we invite, right? So you go to the door to open it and you're not going to back away. But as soon as I saw his face, I was like, no, this isn't a regular interview. This is way more than what it was supposed to be. Right. So you go down. Yep. And you, um, they start with the video, right? So I saw you kind of tear up when the kids were talking about you. Yeah. And uh, your mom and your dad talked about, um, you know, what you were like as a child. And so at this point, do you think it's just like a feature on you? And they're just saying thank you for, you know, uh, being a nurse, being on the front lines, um, as COVID was at its height in New York. Is that what you're thinking is going on? I can't tell you what I was thinking because in that moment, I was literally watching the video, right? So I'm like, oh, these are such great words. Like well, someone loves me like this deeply. Like no one really actually appreciates someone enough to say that, right? Or put together something like this, right? So I'm sitting there and just basking in all of these wonderful words that not only my family has to say, but people that I work with and the kids that I help, it's, that's what I was at. And so then we look at the video and then TJ starts pulling back this check. Oh, a thousand dollars. Yeah. Oh, you know, $10,000. And we get all the way up to $1 million. So at that point, can you remember what your first reaction was when you realized that you were being donated, no strings attached, $1 million? Uh, I had no words. Like I said, I still have no words to this day. We're only three days out from that. So it is very surreal. It was a moment that I was just like, me, like you're, give, you're giving me money. Like what did I do to deserve this? Even though they just went through everything i'm like no like this this is not for me i'm just i i still don't have words for it it still doesn't all make sense to me because i would never in a million years expect for someone to hand me a million dollars to not only you know benefit from my personal life but to be able to further my voice and and speak up for a community that's so underserved and especially in healthcare I, I I can't fathom it I still can't fathom it it's not real I don't think it will hit me until I 
have created something from it. And I know your mom spoke about the fact that, you know, I guess I hadn't really thought about it. Even when you and I chatted earlier, we talked a lot about your life and about, um, you know, some of the ways they tried to discourage you to go into nursing school. But I hadn't thought about how archaic in some ways it seems they are in healthcare of all places when it comes to making sure that um, this community is represented. So she talked about how sometimes she has to help put you on the exam table because they don't even have anything that is like ADA compliant, I guess. I, I mean, that's kind of shocking to me. Why do you think there's in healthcare of all places, they are still so behind when it comes to those types of things um, that would be around ADA? We answered our own question, right? Do you see people with disabilities working in healthcare? No, that's right, why. That's, that, that's why. You are not hiring, not you particularly, but we are not hiring people with disabilities to come and work in institutions. So therefore, it only relies on someone who is completely able to make these decisions and these determinations. And we all know that when it's not something that directly affects us, we don't often think about it. Yeah, that is true. I I guess, you know, that, oh, I'm sorry, were you going to say something else? Yeah, I mean, like it. I'm just saying like, you know, so moving forward, my voice in getting people with disabilities into healthcare is so that healthcare can actually make the drastic shift that it needs to. And I know you said that it still doesn't seem real, but have you had any time to really process what you think you might like to do uh, with some of the money that was donated to you? And if you could name the foundation again, I guess that donated the, the $1 million. So it was the Craig H. Nielsen Foundation that gave me the Visionary Award of a million dollars for their inaugural. Uh, this is an, uh, their first inaugural gift. And I was one of three other winners. Um, and like I said during the interview, and it's something that has been on my mind way before now, was to create a program that allowed individuals with all different types of disabilities to be able to study different parts of the healthcare field, whether that be in nursing, being a doctor, uh, being an ultrasound tech, being a phlebotomist. Like, how do we create programs that are fully accessible to anyone and everyone's disability? How do we Um, make these programs accessible and not turn them away just because they have a difference or they need to take extra breaks. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, I guess to me, it's just amazing that we've got rules in place that you are, that are supposed to um, assist with those types of things. And we're still so far behind in so many ways. So I know that you said it's been a few days But what has life been like since the announcement was made to you on GMA that you were going to be gifted $1 million? Life has been a whirlwind. It has been a blur. I took time last night to just be with family, close family. Uh, And today, again, back to work, getting things ready. I am still working a full-time job. I work at a school, so I'm getting ready for school to open Uh, making sure all the kids have all of their immunizations in order to even come into the building. So like I'm working double time uh, on top of trying to still manage all of the messages that are coming in, outpouring of love and support and recognition and trying to answer as many of them as I can. But as soon as I answer one, there's like 20 more in its place. So 
that's been insane and I don't like to really be on my phone as it is so I try to dedicate at least an hour to it but an hour isn't enough so I've been trying it's a whirlwind give me time to respond to everyone I, I will try my best to do so uh, but it's been extremely difficult to get back to everyone but outside of that it's just been a whirlwind and messages and interviews and whatnot and people will say like well you know this is a good thing and it is a great thing. I love the fact that my message is getting out there. I love the recognition, but this is extremely overwhelming for someone who is a uh, majority uh, a forced extrovert. So uh, it's it's been wild. Obviously it was a huge surprise and I agree while it's a great thing, I'm sure it, it it's a lot that you have to process, a lot you have to do on top of actually taking care of the kids as school opens. And so just to take a quick a turn to talk about school for a bit. How are you feeling about the opening of school and how are the plans going for that? I mean, thankfully, my my location and my, uh, we I'm in a private school. We have what we need to be able to open and open safely. However, I live in New York City where a majority of public schools can't house the amount of kids that will be in them, let alone the overcrowding of these buildings that were initially built to hold maybe seven or 800 students that are now holding 2,500 students plus. So it it's scary. It, it's, you know, it, we're hoping for the best while knowing that the worst is the possibility. And when do you guys start school there in New York or have you started already? Uh, our, my, the private schools mostly are open. A lot of the charter schools will open this Tuesday, the 15th and public schools will open on the 21st. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And again, I know you've heard this a lot, but congratulations. Thank you so very much. I appreciate it. Hope you guys really enjoyed that. I was so excited that Andrea had the time to be able to talk with us and just give us an update on how life has been since that amazing opportunity. So that's all the time we have for today. If there's anything you want to hear us talk about, as always, you can hit me up at kdt at inmyshoestoday.com. Again, that's kdt at inmyshoestoday.com. And until next time, be blessed.